We'll hear argument next in case 081314, Williamson versus Mazda. Mr. Buchanan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue here is whether a common law claim that Mazda should have equipped Mrs. Williamson's seating position with a lap shoulder belt is impliedly preempted under the rationale of Geyer versus American Honda. The claim is not preempted because it is perfectly consistent with and would not frustrate the objectives of the operative 1989 version of Standard 208 governing Type 2 seat belts in rear seats. One point that is clear from this Court's express preemption holding in Geyer is that Congress intended common law to play a complementary role in achieving the objectives of the Motor Vehicle Safety Act. Based on the Savings Clause, the Court decided that Congress intended to preserve a significant role for State tort law to operate in compensating accident victims and promoting greater safety in vehicle design. And on the issue of implied obstacle preemption, the majority also agreed with the dissent that State common law will not be preempted unless there is clear evidence of a conflict with Federal objectives. Why would, why would the Federal Government do that? I mean, trust uh, juries to uh, supplement whatever, uh, whatever the uh, Federal rules are, but not permit State agencies who, who study the matter with experts to supplement what the Federal Government does. Why does that make any sense? To just say, oh, you know, we, we, we don't want the state mucking around in this area. But, of course, juries can do so. Why, why does that make any sense? Justice Scalia, I think the Court answered that question in Spritzma, where it said common law has an important role to play in providing compensation to victims. And, therefore, the Court found it rational in Spritzma to make that distinction. Uh, and, ultimately, it's a, it's a judgment call for Congress to make. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt they made it. I, I'm just curious as to why it could possibly have been. Well, un, un, unless uh, I, unless uh, lawyers uh, uh, bring uh, suits before before juries, maybe. Well, Justice Scalia, I believe common law has an important role to play not only in compensating victims, but also in providing manufacturers with an incentive to develop safer vehicles, even safer than the federal minimum standards. I thought the, the reason that um, the, the Solicitor General gives for not — that, that um, NHTSA did not immediately require the Type 2 seatbelt is because um, uh, the costs would have been higher. Is that your understanding? Mr. Chief Justice, for the aisle seating position that we're talking about in this case, the reason NHTSA decided not to mandate it immediately was, A, a concern about obstructing the aisleway with the shoulder belt, and, B, a concern, yes, about the cost of a possible alternative design. How come allowing, or why doesn't allowing the relief you seek under state law uh, impose those same costs, contrary to NHTSA's uh, uh, objective in not making those mandatory? Well, Your Honor, any time NHTSA cr creates a safety standard, it necessarily takes into account costs and benefits uh, and, and the safety right. attributes. So and a state tort action does not. A state tort action does. What I'm trying to — the point I'm trying to make, Mr. Chief Justice, is that if that were sufficient to preempt 
then any minimum standard that NHTSA creates would therefore preempt State law and it would nullify no, the I suppose I, I understand that argument. I'm not sure it's, it's right, though, in the sense that NHTSA may decide not to make particular product, uh, standards mandatory for reasons other than cost. It may decide it doesn't see, think the technology is adequately developed. It may decide that it doesn't think there are adequate, uh, you know, mechanics prepared or involved. But here it's because of the cost. And the relief you're seeking, it seems to me, directly imposes the costs that NHTSA decided not to require. Well, NHTSA made a decision as of 1989 that the technology — it obviously had concerns about the technology and costs. But any type of — of uh, consideration of technology and costs is as of that moment in time. And the agency specifically encouraged manufacturers to install Type 2 lap shoulder belts in these types of seating positions. And our lawsuit is perfectly consistent with the agency's objective of encouraging lap shoulder belts in these seating positions by 1993. Well, every — there's no objective that the government pursues regardless of costs. I understand that their objective was to encourage this, but it was clearly not to impose it because it thought at that time that the costs were too great. So to simply say their objective was to get these in ignores the other side of the cost-benefit analysis. Well, I think what the agency did with respect to these seating positions in 1989 is, it re- A, it recognized that there were tremendous safety benefits for type 2 lap shoulder belts. And, yes, it found su- su- enough countervailing considerations in terms of cost and feasibility not to mandate that as part of the federal minimum standard. Uh, and so from the federal government's perspective, for these seating positions, the government was neutral as between t- type 1 and type 2 belts. Either one of those belts would have sufficed to m- satisfy the federal agency's objectives. And therefore, a state law claim that eliminates effectively one of those options does not in any way frustrate the agency's objectives. The government has explained in its brief that its objectives would have been fully satisfied if all car manufacturers had installed Type 2 lap shoulder belts immediately. Why is that different from Geyer? Didn't, didn't the automobile manufacturer in Geyer, wasn't, weren't the manufacturers similarly left to, to do, choose for themselves, whether, whether to have one type of, of constraint or another? They were, Justice Scalia, but the Court's decision in Geyer did not turn on the mere fact that the manufacturers had a choice. And Mazda is not asserting that claim here either. The the determinative agency policy at issue in Geyer was that the agency deliberately sought a variety of different passive restraint types. It was concerned about a public backlash against airbags, and it wanted to encourage the development of alternative passive restraint system. But you're saying that once the government gives the manufacturer a choice, then the uh, jury, the the tort system can second-guess it. And that is not consistent with a likely government intent uh, to allow the manufacturers a choice uh, based on the technical advances to that date. Justice Kennedy, I I don't think that the government gave manufacturers a choice. It gave them two different options for complying with a minimum standard. But it didn't suggest that foreclosing one of those options would in any way frustrate its objectives. It didn't suggest that it thought state 
that there should well, be some. Well, suppose the government says you have a choice, and uh, the state of uh, Iowa passes a law and says you don't have a choice. No, no frustration of the governmental purpose there? It depends what the reason for the choice is, Justice Kennedy. No, there's just, just the statutes as, I, as I've given them to you. Is there, is there preemption just on the face of the statute? Not if it's, a, not if it's just simply creating a minimum standard. It's, there's no preemption. That's what the statute uh, calls for, minimum. Yes. That the agency is to set minimum standards. And then I take it that the court in Geyer said it wasn't, it wasn't a minimum standard because if a state deviated from it, it would detract, it would be an obstacle to the realization of the federal standard. But here, the, uh, a minimum standard was adopted, minimal standard, and I think the agency is telling us it's the opposite of what it said in Geyer, right? Exactly correct, Justice Ginsburg. In Geyer, the agency was the entity putting forward the theory of preemption that this claim by Geyer that all Honda vehicles should have been equipped with airbags frustrated its intent to accomplish a whole variety or mix of passive restraint devices. It was a direct conflict with the agency's objectives. Here the agency is telling us the exact opposite. It was not trying to further choice or variety. It was not trying to maintain a diversity of type 1 and type 2 seatbelts in rear seating positions. Its objective was to obtain the greater safety benefits of type 2 seatbelts. The agency found that type 2 seatbelts were more effective in preventing fatalities and serious injuries, that they offered greater overall protection for children, and most fundamentally, that they actually increased seatbelt usage in rear seating positions. Our common law theory seeks to obtain all those exact same safety benefits for aisle seating positions. And we know by 1993, when this vehicle was manufactured, at least one major manufacturer, GM, was in fact installing type 2 lap shoulder belts in aisle seating positions. Our complaint alleges that it was perfectly feasible for Mazda to do so in 1993 when it manufactured this vehicle, and that it was unreasonable not to do so. And that's of course, course under your theory, if, if I understand your case, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, if GM had installed the Type 2, they could have been sued on the theory that Type 1 was better, and there would have been no preemption. I think that would be a much more difficult case, Justice but Kennedy. Under but under the theory of your case, that suit could go that, forward. That's correct. Theoretically, that suit could move forward. Um, but the question that the Supremacy Clause asks is not whether, hypothetically, there might be future conflicting jury verdicts. The question is, does our claim here that we're asserting under California state law conflict with the federal objectives? It does not. The agency has told us it does not. There is nothing in the contemporaneous regulatory history of the Type 2 seatbelt rule. What if, what if the, the rule here had another provision that said you, you must have, you know, Type 1, um, you can have Type 2, but we are not. You can have Type 2, right? But we are not requiring Type 2 because we think the costs on manufacturers would be too great. We may require it in the future, but not now. Is it the same is your position the same? My position would be the same. There is no preemption there. Well, doesn't, doesn't the increased costs that are imposed by the tort liability 
conflict with NHTSA's determination in my hypothetical that uh, they're not requiring type 2 because of the cost. Your Honor, any, but any time the agency considers costs, it's at a particular moment in time. And it's not necessarily a determination that for all the future this should never be done and no state law should ever mandate that it be done. Uh, and that's what we have here is not only a determination that there were cost issues, but an affirmative encouragement to manufacturers to do what our state Well, so that if the regulation comes out on July 1, you say there's a preemption till midnight July 1. But as of July 2, there could be a suit. I, I think there was never preemption under this regulation. I think that you, you're saying the statute says minimal standard, and the agency said no obstacle, and that's it. That it's if, — if there is a preemptive force to the, to the uh, sta- safety standard, then it is for the government administrator to say that. Correct, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, and not only does it say minimum standards, it explicitly says in the savings clause that mere compliance with a motor vehicle safety standard shall not exempt the manufacturer from common law liability. Well, it said all those things in Geyer, too, didn't it? It did, but again, the key dispositive fact in Geyer was the agency's desire to achieve a variety of different passive restraint devices and a claim that the entire Honda fleet should have had airbags would directly conflict with that. That was the dispositive fact in this Court's decision in Geyer. And that is what is lacking here. Uh, and what we have here is much well, your, more — your, your judgment here doesn't apply to the entire Mazda fleet, supposedly, right? Just, just to, the, to the car that caused harm to, to the plaintiff. No, that's not correct, Justice Scalia. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of, of whether it's the entire fleet or not. It's a matter of whether the common law claim conflicts with the federal objective. And in Geyer, it conflicted because the objective was variety. What about the next case? Um, let's assume a similar case. Is, is, is that jury bound to come out the same way as to whether there should have been the shoulder constraint or not? No, Justice Scalia. And that's something that the Court in Geyer contemplated and discussed. The Court in Geyer acknowledged that. Yeah, Geyer came out against you. I, 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 I it came out appealing to Geyer. I don't. I think Geyer fully supports us, Justice Scalia. Uh, and certainly on the express preemption issue, the Court acknowledged the possibility that there could be conflicting results in inconsistent jury verdicts, which is Why always. Why are you looking to Geyer when you have a statute that says common law remedies are saved? I mean, it was Congress that said that. Maybe it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but they did. I agree with you, Justice Ginsburg, but I think Geyer also says that. Geyer relies on the savings clause to say that there's a significant role for common law actions to play, uh, and specifically with regard to the possibility of inconsistent jury verdicts. The court in Geyer said uh, the possible possibility of non-uniformity, the savings clause reflects a, con- a congressional determination that that's a small price to pay for a system where juries create and enforce safety standards, and simultaneously provide compensation to victims. So I think that's something the Court considered in Geyer. Uh, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel.
Mr. Jay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, respondents chose to comply with the federal minimum safety standard by installing a Type 1 seatbelt. But the Savings Clause makes clear that they are not exempted from the consequences of that choice under state common law when that choice results in injury. They must show that, I, as Geyer makes clear, that the state law rule of decision would pose a conflict with an articulable federal policy. They haven't shown that here. I'd like to go first uh, to the ch- question that the Chief Justice asked my friend Mr. Buchanan about cost-benefit analysis and the federal judgment that at the time the imposition of a national, uniform, federal minimum standard of Type 2 seatbelts wasn't warranted at these seating positions. Simply saying that, and I, and I, uh, simply saying that is not enough to establish that the federal agency wished for uh, the adoption of Type 2 seatbelts not to happen. Every, as Mr. Buchanan said, every federal rulemaking, certainly every NHTSA safety standard adoption, must No, it didn't, it, it, I agree with you. It doesn't require, it doesn't support the inference that they did not want type 2 seatbelts to happen, to be used. It does, in my hypothetical view, support the inference that it didn't want to mandate type 2 seatbelts, because it was worried, as you said in your brief, page 9, about the cost. And yet, its worries about the cost, it seems to me, are overridden by the position that state tort suits can go on for the absence of type 2 seatbelts. Well, of course, the baseline is that state tort suits can always go forward. And, uh, and in this case, uh, the agency decided not to impose this nationwide mandate because of uh, the trade-off between costs and benefits. The benefits were significant. Everyone recognizes that. Everyone recognizes that type 2 seatbelts were better for uh, better or at least equivalent for all categories of passengers. And I, and I will come back to that. But uh, in, as far as the imposition of costs go, NHTSA decided that it was not worth it at that time for NHTSA to require that. That doesn't mean that NHTSA wanted to adopt a policy of freeing manufacturers of, uh, uh, of any obligation to incur those costs, let alone that it wanted uh, — for example, if NHTSA had thought that it would uh, harm safety for manufacturers to spend that money on type 2 seatbelts instead of something else, it could have said that. In Geyer, for example, the reason that the agency deliberately well, it sought variety — Well, did say earlier, didn't it? I'm sorry, Justice Earlier it said that there was um, difficulties with pre-1989, 82 or 84, that there were difficulties with type 2 belts and, and uh, children's um, uh, safety. So was this preempted in 82, 84 and not preempted by 89? No, Justice Sotomayor. It was not preempted at any time. What- so what, what do you need? for um, the agency to say before Geyer comes into effect? Well, what I, lower courts, what's the minimum that lower courts missed here in um, not in, in coming to the conclusion they did in their application of Geyer? The, the contrast between this case and Geyer is that this case, like Geyer, involves options, but it does not involve a federal policy that those options, that the manufacturer must remain free to choose among those options as it sees fit. Mr. In Jay, Geyer, I, I'm sorry. I, 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 was, I was going to say, in Geyer, the manufacturer, uh, the, the agency concluded that it would disserve safety if uh, automatic uh, seatbelts and airbags were not both on the market. There's been no such determination here, either in 1984 or at any other time. Isn't it true that for a period of 10 years, the lower courts uniformly held that there wasn't any preemption here? And, and if that's the case, why — 
didn't the federal government come forward at any point during that time and say that this is preemptive? Two, two responses, Justice Alito. Uh, first, uh, the question presented here about type 1 versus type 2 seatbelts has only been decided by a couple of federal courts of appeals, no state courts of last resort. Second, on the, on the more general question, why, why doesn't uh, NHTSA participate in these cases? NHTSA, as a matter of course, does not usually participate in private party litigation under state common law, even when that litigation might touch on a state uh, on uh, the interpretation of a federal safety standard. And uh, when the courts ask for NHTSA's views, NHTSA generally responds, as the, this court asked for the government's views in this case, and the government responded. And I think if the court were to look back to the first brief that the government, in the string of briefs that the government has filed about these issues under this Act, the brief in Wood versus General Motors filed in 1990, you could predict the position that the government was, uh, would take in this case from that brief. The government said in that case that uh, options don't preempt merely because they are options. In most cases, there will be no federal policy that, uh, would, uh, that presents a conflict. Uh, that case presented the, uh, the case of the passive restraint phase-in, and there it was the rare circumstance, as the Court later held in Geyer, where there was frustration at the federal policy. But that's because the federal policy uh, was to encourage variety, not just for its own sake, but because variety would serve safety. Uh, the roads would be measurably less safe if airbags were rushed into service. By contrast, in this case, NHTSA would have been perfectly happy if every manufacturer had installed Type 2 seatbelts the day after the 1989 rulemaking. Uh, so there was no conflict. As far as the child safety concern to which Justice Sotomayor alluded, uh, it is referred to in the 1984 denial of a request to impose the rule that later was imposed in 1989. The agency said, and that it had concerns about how particular child seats, which at the time were anchored with a form of tether, uh, and it said that it it thought that the continued use of tethered car seats was something that it chose to encourage rather than anchoring them with Type 2 seats. The agency did not speak at all uh, to uh, whether Type 2 versus Type 1 was better for child safety, and the agency then answered that in the 1989 rulemaking. So uh, for adults, Type 2 seatbelts are safer, and they encourage seatbelt use because they are more popular. For infants, the, uh, uh, the agency specifically asked whether Type 2 seatbelts could be as efficacious as Type 1 seatbelts in holding an infant car seat in place. It concluded that they could. That set out at page 25 of our brief. Uh, and for toddlers, uh, children who are too small to sit in a uh, Type 2 seatbelt Without assistance, the agency recommended booster seats. And if there was no booster seat, the agency recommended they not use the, sh- not use the shoulder belt. Not that they detached the shoulder belt. The agency indeed specifically rejected the idea that the, that the shoulder belt should be removed at page 47990 of the Notice of Proposed Rule. If a child were injured uh, by a Type 2 belt, would uh, a suit based on that be preempted? If the child were injured by the, by the Type 2 belt on the th- and the suit would be on the theory that a Type 1 belt should have been installed, yes. uh, at that time, no, that, that lawsuit would not have been preempted. Mr. Buchanan said that that would be a harder case, and I think he said that because the agency was specifically encouraging Type 2 seat belts. And, and uh, in this case, respondents can't show anything suggesting that, re- that the agency was encouraging Type 1 seat belts. So it might be a harder case for that reason. But at that time, uh, there were two ways of complying with the federal minimum standard. And the Savings Clause provides that simply complying with the federal standard does not preempt the operation of state common law. 
So uh, we've discussed the child safety, uh, the alleged child safety rationale. I want to say a word about the, uh, the idea that uh, aisle seats were uh, unsafe for the installation of these seat belts. As Mr. As Mr. Buchanan mentioned, the agency specifically encouraged the installation of those seats where it was feasible. It was found to be feasible in 1991 by General Motors, which installed them. Uh, but another word about that, because respondents have uh, suggested that the chief counsel of NHTSA has uh, said in 1994 in a letter something favorable to their position. And that letter is reproduced in the appendix to the, res- to the petitioner's reply brief. And I urge the Court to look at the entire letter and not just the, the sentence that's excerpted several times in Respondent's brief, because what the agency said was that uh, in response to someone who complained that his uh, — that manufacturers were installing Type 2 seatbelts, and uh, they said — uh, the, the complainant said, that makes these minivans unsafe because people will be trapped in the back seat. The agency said it disagreed that people could go under the safety belt, that they could detach the safety belt, th- that the safety benefits of a Type 2 seat belt uh, outweighed any convenience concern about access to or egress from the rear seat. And I think that's perfectly consistent with the policy NHTSA has taken all along. Type 2 seat belts are safer, more effective, and to, uh, and to be encouraged. When NHTSA decided not to mandate that, based on its understanding at the time of who used seatbelts, who used seatbelts in the rear center seats, and what the uh, — um, how many fatalities and injuries would be pre- uh, prevented, and whether the dollar cost uh, would be justified by, you know, by the dollar equivalent of injuries and fatalities prevented, it wasn't making a preemptive judgment that Type 2 seatbelts, therefore, should not be installed uh, and for that reason, there's no frustration of anything that NHTSA uh, had in mind in the 1989 rulemaking uh, by, the, uh, by allowing this tort suit to proceed as saved by the Savings Clause. If, if we adopt your view, would Geyer apply to any other regulation? Uh, I don't think that Geyer is uh, uh, good for that day only. I do think that, as we said in Geyer, in the, in a, the brief in Wood to which we alluded and so on, that Geyer is the exceptional circumstance. That was, of course, a, a exceptionally difficult and unusual rulemaking. Uh, the phase-in concern in Geyer, one can easily envision being replicated in another safety standard issue where the agency uh, were to conclude that uh, it's going to impose a new requirement, but it does not want it rushed into service in the entire fleet right away, that, uh, and that so it affirmatively discourages hurried uh, installation. But that's not the case here because the agency actually encouraged earlier compliance. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Garr. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1984 and again in 1989, the agency specifically determined that the statutory safety and practicability objectives would be best served by giving manufacturers the flexibility to install a lap-only or lap-shoulder seatbelt in the Could rear. Could I ask you a question? How is this case different from a situation where the agency looks at a request for a minimum standard? says, um, require that a certain light be added to the lights in a car. The agency comes back and says, you know, there are so many designs of cars. In some cars, particularly sedans, the light is an added safety feature. In vans, it may not be because of the size of vans. And so we're not going to require it. We're going to let manufacturers, depending on what design their car has, to choose between the two so that we're not going to set a minimum standard for everyone because there are too many different designs. Despite that ruling, 
a manufacturer says it costs two pennies more to put this light in a sedan. I know the agency has said it's safer, but I don't want to do it. I don't have a van. I don't have any reason except the two pennies that I don't want to do it. Is that case preempted because you were just merely given the option? The typical case where a Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard establishes only a minimum, like the standard for braking performance or, or roof structure, is not going to be preempted. Geyer says that. Well, how we're is not this challenging different that. from the hypothetical where the agency said this there could be an obstruction with the entry but manufacturers who can design it without the obstruction should really do it. How is this this case different than the one? This case is different because the agency specifically recognized in 84 and 89 that there were serious safety and practicability trade-offs between these two different design options and specifically gave manufacturers the option of installing one type of seatbelt or the other. Nothing the agency that I can find says that the agency really wanted a mix of options. I mean, they said it's up to the manufacturer, but in Geyer, which I think all of this could be just avoided, if I the agency would simply say, do they want to have this to be a maximum or just a minimum? It's so easy to say that, but I haven't found agencies saying it. I don't know why. We're not We're forced here. to deal with the situation we have. And the situation we have in Geyer was filled with indications that they really wanted a mix because of the unusual circumstances present there. What the agency, you have to point to something here that shows that. What Why? the agency wanted here was flexibility. It wanted flexibility because it recognized that there were safety trade-offs and that the safety and practicability objectives were best served But wait a minute. Even that what, what you're not answering is flexibility to ensure that a manufacturer imposes or thinks about safety and chooses the option that's safest. And, and so what's the inducement for a manufacturer to put the light into a sedan or to put a seatbelt to when it can without causing an added safety risk? If it's preempted, there's no inducement. The agency recognized here that type 1 seatbelts, the lap-only seatbelts, themselves posed unique safety risks. It did so to children. If you look at the 1984 rulemaking, the agency couldn't have been more clear that we're not going to impose a type 2 mandate for rear seats because that's going to be harmful to children. The agency preserved that very status quo in 1989. Petitioners recognized that and note one of their brief. Mr. Carr, in, in Geyer, I think um, it was Justice Breyer who called attention to the agency having informed the Court that if tort suits were to go on uh, in, in, in contradiction to the government's view that there should be both of these, that the, 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 the safety, safety standard that was set there, it would be disturbed. It would be impeded. And the opinion said uh, we assign weight to the Department of Transportation there, to their view that a tort suit there would stand as an obstacle to the accomplishment of the Federal safety standards. And if the Court gives weight to what the agency says, 
in Geyer, shouldn't it equally give weight here when it is telling us that there is no conflict? It says its rule sets out what the statute calls for a minimum standard. We don't think the Court should defer to the agency's position. We don't think the Court should adopt it. In Geyer, the Court found that the regulatory was, record was clear enough that it didn't have to rely on the agency position. But then the court, what, what, what was the Court doing in saying that? Was it just wanted the agency to feel good? Well, I, I think what it said, and, and obviously Justice Breyer can correct me, he wrote the opinion for the Court, was that um, it, it thought the regulatory record was clear enough, but it did ultimately say that it did agree with the agency, although it didn't make a difference to the Court. It also said it here. did say that there is a practical thing, not, not, not some theoretical legal thing. Who is most likely to know what 40,000 pages of agency record actually mean and say? People in the agency. And the second most likely is the SG's office, because they'll have to go tell them. But so if the government continuously says, this is what the agency means, and the agency's telling them, yeah, this is what it means, the chances are they'll come to a better, correct conclusion than I will with my law clerks, because I have a lot to do. All right. Of course, from, <laughs> now, from that the is practical, I'm sorry that that is the practical uh, uh, idea that I think underlies what was said in Guy. And from the Wyeth case, we know that the Court isn't always going to agree with the agency. Here, I think what's different from Geyer is that you have no contemporaneous interpretation of the agency. The agency is looking at a cold record going back 20 years, and it's not taking into account everything that's in the record. No, but they, they did. We are dealing with 1989 primarily. That's and right. in 1989, I think, we're at least quoted on the other side, is what the agency said was, well, we see these lap and shoulder belts are actually more effective. Now, we're reluctant to, to recommend them for the center seat or the aisle seat because people might get caught in the spools. On the other hand, manufacturers may be able to work out that problem. Therefore, we encourage the manufacturers to try to figure out a way around it. And the SG, looking at all that stuff, says, you see, they didn't mind if manufacturers were put under another legal obligation to do it because uh, they'd have no objection to making the manufacturers do it. They're just not certain yet. And yeah, I, now, that's, that's how I read what was said. And I think that's what the SG says, and we think that that the SG is wrong. We think the agency said in 1989 and it said in 1984, it couldn't have been more clear that they did not want to mandate the Type 2 belt, the very rule that petitioners want to mandate through this state law toward action. They didn't want to do it because they were concerned about child safety. They were concerned about aisle safety. They were concerned about practicability. But that's only the case when the agency sets a minimum. By setting a minimum, it's basically saying we don't want to mandate more. That's but, but you're not disagreeing that the statute by its term says that a minimum doesn't preempt state common law. The statute says that, and from Geyer, we know that that doesn't resolve so the preemption I, I'm question. still not sure why creating an option is any different than the minimum. Where the option is designed to create flexibility that serves statutory safety and but practicability. But the default is always that the manufacturers have an option. A minimum, by definition, gives manufacturers options. It's not that as a practical matter, that kind of option, like the minimum for federal breaking standards, is fundamentally different than the kind of option in Geyer and the kind of option But you haven't explained why. Me the reason why is because — minimum, by its own definition, gives freedom to the manufacturer to impose more if it chooses or not, why does the option 
to tell a manufacturer, pick what you think is safest. Why does that do more? Because the agency determined here that the flexibility was necessary to advance federal safety and practicability objectives, and that, that those objectives would be frustrated by a Type 2 mandate. And flexibility, but this Court has recognized — there was no such statement. I mean, there was a statement, we don't want to impose those costs. But we have the agency in court, and we have the uh, Solicitor General's office in court telling us the statute is minimum, the statute says the common law isn't displaced, and we are telling the court that we think this is a situation where it is minimum, and so the common law isn't displaced. Shouldn't we assume that the standard this, this, that the agency set, standard the agency sets, is a minimum standard unless the agency tells us that it should be preemptive of tort suits. Not where you have the kind of unique standard here. And granted, this is going to be the rare situation. But if you look at, for example, take child safety, the agency couldn't have been clearer in 1984 and look at 49 Federal Register 15241, the final rule, that it was not going to mandate type 2 seatbelts because they found that that would harm child safety. The agency specifically carried forward that rule in 1989 for the rear inboard seats at issue in this case. Note one of petitioner's reply brief said that the law is exactly the same in 1989 as to these seats as in 1984. It had to have been preemptive in 1984, notwithstanding what, what my friend said here from the government today. And if it was preempted in 1984, it has to be preempted in 1989. The trade-offs here, we've talked about the lawsuit involving a, a child who was, who was restrained by a shoulder belt and harmed as a, as a result of that belt, which was a concern that NHTSA has recognized throughout its history. Under their position, the, the manufacturer could be sued for having a Type 2 belt by the child who was harmed or by the person in the back row who, who had difficulty getting out of the car in the event of an accident, just as much as they could have been sued under petitioner's theory for having a Type 1 belt. This, the, the agency recognized this was a unique situation where there were serious safety and practicability trade-offs. They wanted to give the, agent, the, the manufacturers flexibility to make this decision, and that flexibility served the agency concluded that the federal safety and, and, and practicability objectives. If you look at this court's but I'm decision, sorry, you still haven't responded to me. Manufacturers are always at risk for common law claims under this statute, because this statute expressly says they are. Every design choice a manufacturer makes under almost any situation where the common law is in effect puts it at risk that a jury will decide whether it did enough or not under cost-benefit analysis and, and technology. So I don't know why when the agency creates a minimum by choice or not, it should be implicitly preempted in from the application of state law. And, Justice Sotomayor, there are hundreds of Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, and I would agree with you for virtually all of them, except you have the rare standards, and they're rare, like the one in Geyer and like the one here, where the agency 
quite obviously is doing something much different. It's expressly granting options, and it's making clear in the record that the reason it is doing that is to serve federal objectives that would be frustrated by the imposition of a particular rule. And I think you have to look at this from the standpoint of the manufacturers, who are told that they can manufacture their car with this design or that design, and can go and look at the Federal Register and see that the reason the agency is doing that is to advance safety and practicability. How do you how do you tell in your response to Justice Sotomayor? How do you tell whether the agency is giving options or simply setting a minimum? Well, first you would look because a minimum, of course, always gives you options. In the, in the very generalized sense, but we know from Geyer that that doesn't resolve the preemption question, because the same could have been said with respect to the rule in Geyer. First, you would look at the rule, and you're just not going to find very many rules at all in the, federal regi- in, in the Code of Federal Regulations that provide this kind of express option for a equipment design. And then second, you'd go look and you'd say, and you'd see what the agency said about that in its final rules, and the commentary accompanying the final rules. And here, if you looked, not only would you find that the agency granted this flexibility to serve federal safety and practicability objectives, you would find that it specifically rejected the very rule that petitioners want to impose through state tort law because it concluded that that rule would be counterproductive from the standpoint of safety and practicability. So there could be — Is that true in in 1989? I thought there was some advance in the the child seats that you were between — Early 80s and 80s. There was some question about a movement from tethered to non-tethered, but that only created the compatibility issue that the agency recognized in the 1989 <laughs> rulemaking and 1984. I mean, at the, at the same time, the agency is telling manufacturers, install your — manufacture your car seats so they can be installed with a Type 1 lap-only belt. And it's telling parents, parents, put your children in the rear center seat because that's going to be the safest seat, which, by the way, is the seat that's going to have a lap-only belt. That, so it's clear, that in 1989? That was, that was true at the time of 1989, as well as 1989. But this wasn't the center seat. This was an aisle seat. It was, as, as the plaintiffs called it in their complaint, the middle seat of the middle row. It was a center seat in every practical sense. It just happened to be an aisle seat as well because there was a space. I, on the I don't understand that. And I looked for a diagram. They talk about the center seat, aisle seat. And, and unfortunately, a diagram terminology is? is not in the record, Justice yeah, It isn't. But you have, you have three rows in the car. In the front right. row, you've got the, the driver's side and the, the, gotcha. right. the front row driver on the, on the, on the right-hand side. And then you've got the middle row seat, and you've got a back row. The middle row seat had a, a seat on the side, which was the outboard seat, a seat in the middle, which is where the decedent in this case was sitting, and then it had a, an aisle next to it. So it was a center The aisle seat. was not between the two seats. No, it was, it was on the side of the vehicle. So it was a center seat in every practical sense, and therefore created the same structural concerns. Well, as they say here, as I, I law clerk has, they wrote, of course, in those cases where manufacturers are able to design and install lap shoulder belts at seating positions adjacent to aisleways, without interfering with the aisleways' purpose of allowing access to more rearward seating positions, NHTSA encourages the manufacturers to do so. And let me make it doesn't sound like they're against uh, a tort suit that would require you to do so, because in principle, at least, all those things should be taken into account. If I can make three points in response to that. First, as the language you just read indicates, they didn't require, they didn't encourage at all costs. They encouraged where this specific safety concern could be addressed. Second, there's a world of difference between saying we encourage manufacturers to do what's appropriate when they can practically do so 
and a world in which a jury could have decided that they had to be But those arguments are what I think Justice Sotomayor was saying. It is a huge problem for manufacturers. It's called tort suits in different places and different juries in different states. But that's beyond the scope of this case. If, if, if the agency wants to displace those tort suits, often all they have to do is say that the purpose is something like you're saying and that they are intended to be displaced. We, we know from Geyer that the agency doesn't have to make a formal statement. It doesn't have, have to. Intent. That's why I'm only making this comment rather than in the form of a question that maybe I don't understand why they don't. It would make our job simpler. I think the record, we certainly think the record here, the agency really couldn't have been clearer in saying we don't want the type 2 mandate, the lap shoulder mandate the petitioners are trying to impose here. It said it except unambiguously. The, the government doesn't read what it said <laughs> the way you do. I mean, we, we, we are being told here that far from uh, encouraging type 1, all along the government said, yeah, uh, type 2 is a better, better uh, seatbelt. Well, that's just not true. And, 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 and with respect to the government, I don't think that the regulatory record um, supports that generalized statement that it was type 2 at all, at all costs. It, it was clear that the agency No, they did say the reason that we're not making it mandatory is on um, some cost-benefit analysis. We don't think we should impose that as a minimum standard. And gave the very unique kind of option here. The agency identified several costs with imposing the Type 2 mandate here. It recognized the unique safety concerns present where you're trying to stretch a Type 2 belt across the aisle, which is going to block access, which is a clear safety concern. It identified the child safety concerns, which were the basis for this very same option in 1984, and which were carried forward when the agency preserved the status quo for the rear inboard seats at issue here. It recognized other safety concerns, including obstructing the rearward vision of drivers when you install the Type 2 belt in the center seat because but you by, have By 1989, seat. hadn't the agency decided that the child safety concerns were no longer uh, applicable? No, and, and, and the, the portion of the notice of proposed rulemaking that's cited refers to the no positive or negative effects. In that language, um, it, it does not lead to the conclusion that the government or petitioners suggest for a few reasons. First, the agency was referring only to rear outboard seats, not rear inboard seats, the kind of seat at issue. And that's important because NHTSA was telling parents, put your children in the rear center seat, the inboard seat. Because that, that seat also was the seat that was most likely to have the lap belt, which is how NHTSA was telling uh, child seat manufacturers to install their, their child seats so that you could install them with the lap belt because it was more compatible with that. Second of all, um, that, that, that the reference to the no positive or negative was a tentative assessment. If you look in the Federal Register where that language is, appears, it's on 53 Federal Register 47988 to, to 47989. The agency said this is a tentative assessment. We want your comments on this. Comments came back, and the agency backed off from that and said, we have to explore this more. And secondly, that, that positive, no positive or negative statement could only imply when child's 
when children were using the boosters, which would help with the, with the type 2 shoulder belt so that the belt wasn't going over the neck. But Nitsa knew at that time that, that very few, less than 1 percent of parents, were actually putting their kids in the booster seats. This was 20 years ago. This was at a time when many children weren't in car seats at all, no matter what Nitsa was saying. And so they recognized that there were real risk here. The children, children with a type 2 belt, just, just to be clear, and Nitsa recognized this during the 1989 rulemaking, that belt is going to pose an obvious safety risk to children because the shoulder belt that is terrific for adults is going to take, is going to create unique chest loads on children. And if the children is, is not on a booster, as, as virtually all were not, the belt is going to appear too high on the head, on the neck, or on the head, which is not. Why didn't they prohibit it if they were so sure about that? Well, because they still there, allowed it, didn't they? This was something, Justice Scalia, that the agency struggled with for almost a decade until it ultimately adopted the latch system, which resolved the compatibility issue of the lap belt versus the lap shoulder belt for installing the child car seat. I mean, anyone who's tried to, ch- to install a child's car seat with a type 2 belt, the lap shoulder belt, knows how difficult it was. And the agency went back and forth in this and ultimately went in a completely different direction in 1999 and installed the latch system. And the other thing that happened is over time, booster seats became more accepted. More parents were putting children in booster seats with solved that safety concern as well. But 20 years ago, at the time that this rule was adopted, the agency clearly appreciated the child safety risks. Again, in 1984 — Why shouldn't we allow the juries to take account of those changes over time? Because it was — As you say, the the agency's rule only spoke of the situation at that time. This was an area that NHTSA was carefully monitoring. You had rulemakings in 84 and 89, and it adopted a very unique uh, approach to resolving the safety issue, which was to expressly give manufacturers this option to advance federal safety and practicability objectives. We haven't talked as much about the practicability objectives, but that is one of the statutory objectives of the Act. The, the, the Congress couldn't have been more clear on that, and the agency in 1989 couldn't have been more clear in the final notice saying, we're not going to require manufacturers to install Type 2 belts in the rear center and aisle seats, because that's just too costly. It's substantially ex- expensive. And the agency well knew, based on its history, that imposing this sort of overly costly uh, safety measures that the Type 2 belt would have been for these seats at that time could prove counterproductive with the agency's long-term safety mission. The agency said that in the rulemaking in this case at 52 Federal Register 22819, where it said that requiring these kind of overly costly measures created a lost opportunity to improve safety through other means. This is something that Congress gave the agency, the expert, um, judgment to make on these matters. And, and the, the, the practicability objective, which was just as much a statutory objective as a safety objective, would have been directly frustrated if, as could have happened, under the petitioner's position in this case, on the very day after the agency passed this rule in 1989 and said, we are not going to require rear inboard seats to have type 2 lap shoulder belts, a jury in California hit my client with a multi-million dollar punitive damages award because they did not install a type 2 belt in that seat. That would have been directly contrary to the federal objectives. It would have undermined the safety objectives that the agency recognized. It would have undermined the practicability objectives that the agency Recognize, and then you'd have this world in which manufacturers like my client could be hit with multi-million dollar punitive damages award in one state for installing the Type 2 belt where a child was injured or someone was in the back seat and couldn't get out. We were were told that there was one manufacturer, I think General Motors was mentioned, that was 
doing the uh, type 2 belts uniformly? I think that was later in time. It wasn't in 1989. Truthfully, if, if you look as late as 2004, when the agency adopted the so-called Anton's Law rule, which eventually did mandate uh, type 2 belts in these kinds of seats, even then the agency recognized that there were still technical feasibility concerns with installing the type 2 belts in these seats. And just to be clear, the, the problem is, is finding the anchor to install the shoulder belt in the rear center or aisle seats. You've got to anchor it somewhere. If you put it in the sidewall, you're going to have straps crossing across the aisle and obstructing access. If you put it in, in the roof, you're going to have something that but that's not the vision. case here. The issue is whether it was feasible in this car, not whether or not it was not feasible elsewhere. And the agency resolved conclusively that it was not practical in 1989. Was it theoretically possible? It Eventually, manufactured. To my point of the light in the sedan versus the van, it's letting the manufacturers decide what's the best choice. It gave them that flexibility. The agency determined the 1994 Chief Counsel letter, and we hope the Court does read it, makes it clear that the agency concluded that in this situation, and it's a rare situation, the manufacturer was in the best position to decide what was most appropriate for its vehicles. And again, there's this flexibility objective. And if you look at Fidelity Federal Savings and Loan versus De La Cuesta, the decision cited on page 19 of our brief, you have this Court recognizing that a, that a Federal law that gave flexibility where you have a State mandate that interferes with that flexibility, that is an actual conflict. U- ultimately, under Geyer, this Court is looking for the existence of an actual conflict. We think a rule that says, manufacturers, you, you are free to choose between this type of seatbelt and that type of seatbelt, and the reason that we're giving you that flexibility is to advance federal safety and practicability objectives. We are not going to require you to put a lap shoulder belt in there because that would frustrate those federal objectives. The state law tort suit that would mandate the very thing that the agency chose not to, to advance federal objectives, is preempted, if there are no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Buchanan, you have four minutes. First of all, I'd like to clear up the child safety issue, and I know Mr. Jay has addressed this to some extent, but let me be perfectly clear. There is absolutely nothing in the 87 to 89 regulatory history that mentions anything about child safety being a consideration in the agency's decision not to mandate type 2 shoulder belts for aisle and center seating positions. Specifically, Justice Ginsburg asked Mr. Garr about whether there's anything about the rear center seat being the safest place for children in that regulatory history. There is no mention whatsoever in that regulatory history about that issue, and the reason for that is this. The reason the rear center seat was considered safer for children had nothing to do with the type of seat belt that was installed in that seat. It's considered safest for children because it's farthest from the potential points of impact in a side impact collision. When you talk about safety to children, are you also addressing the strap going across the aisle or the strap interfering with vision? I know that's not directly related to children, but it affects what type of uh, belt might be the safest overall. Yeah, you're, you're right, Mr. Chief Justice. That was not expressed in any way in terms of a child safety concern. I would also, minor correction, the interference with rear vision was a, a comment that a commenter made in the regulatory history, and the agency never really expressed an opinion one way or the other about what the, whether that was a concern. I think what's really important here 
is that state tort law provides an incentive for manufacturers to exercise their options reasonably. And whether that option is to exceed a minimum standard that doesn't have options or to choose between two different options that a minimum standard uh, uh, provides, state tort law ensures that manufacturers act reasonably. But but state tort law doesn't — juries typically don't take into account the fleet costs of avoiding liability which, as I understand from the SG's brief in this case, was the reason that Type 2 was not mandated, because of the overall costs. If you have a jury with an injured plaintiff, you're not likely to weigh heavily the fact that uh, you know, this would cost three extra cents uh, per car fleet-wide. Well, I if think that is the sort of thing NHTSA considers. Mr. Chief Justice, under any state's tort law, I think costs and feasibility would be practical considerations for the jury under the jury instructions given. Uh, those are liability issues, costs and, and feasibility in any, in any tort system. Uh, and so I, I, th- that's a liability issue down the road. Here it's important to preserve stor- state tort law because Congress said state tort law shall be preserved. And, again, whether it's a choice between options, type 1 or type 2, or whether uh, it's potential liability for not going beyond the minimum breaking standard, either way, manufacturers should be held accountable, according to Congress in its enactment of this statute, uh, for the design choices they make. There's nothing different about a design standard option one versus option two. Um, The final point I want to make before I sit down uh, is that I think in some respects this case with regard to the question about whether Congress intended for the agency to be the exclusive authority for weighing these types of considerations, uh, in, some, in some respects, Wyeth versus Levine is instructive here, because I think that that was the same argument that was made in Wyeth versus Levine, that a jury should not be allowed to second-guess the FDA's labeling issues, uh, and that to allow the jury to do so would subvert the exclusive authority of a federal agency. And the Court rejected that argument in Wyeth. Uh, and as the dissent pointed out in Wyeth, that statute did not even have a savings clause, and it did not define the labeling uh, standards as minimum standards. Here we have a much more clear expression of congressional intent. They intended this, these to be minimum standards. They have a savings clause that says common law liability shall be preserved. Obviously, Congress did not intend NHTSA to be the exclusive safety standard cook. They deliberately preserved state court juries as also providing for additional vehicle safety and for an incentive to manufacture safer vehicles. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.